1: Hello and welcome to Seriously, the new Statesman podcast that takes pop culture seriously.
2: I'm Caroline Crampton. And I'm Anna Leskovich. This week we're talking about the new St Vincent album, Mass Seduction, and the latest Louis Theroux documentaries on the BBC.
1: Caroline has also watched the HBO miniseries Big Little Lies for the first time, so she'll be talking about how that went later in the show.
2: Hello. Hello.
1: Welcome back to another episode of Seriously Pod. We're just sifting through the emails as we ordinarily do.
2: Yeah, and there's a complete mixed bag. People are still sending us feminist western suggestions, so thank you very much for that.
1: My god, who knew there were so many?
2: I know, it's actually very heartening. But a slightly less heartening, but very important email has come in from Hannah who asks, after your discussion of problematic faves, I was wondering if you were planning to mention Harvey Weinstein on the podcast at all. This is not to forget or minimalize the experiences of anyone who has reported being assaulted by him, but I found myself preoccupied with why these accusations against him have stuck and resulted in real life-changing tangible consequences when accusations against many others do not appear to have harmed their careers very much at all. And then she goes on to say, my initial thoughts were that maybe as a producer rather than actor or director, he is less visible and therefore less insulated by crowds of adoring fans, but I don't know enough to know if that has any weight. So yeah, this has been like a sort of cataclysmic event in the sort of Hollywood film world in the last 10 days or so, hasn't it?
1: Yeah, and basically the accusations against Harvey Weinstein, who is a film producer and studio executive. So he's the executive of a studio called The Weinstein Company, which has produced so many movies like The King's Speech and Paddington and loads. And he's also been behind films like Shakespeare in Love, just so many. The accusations against him are kind of wide-ranging and from multiple sources suggesting that he's groped women over the years. There's even three accusations of rape in the Ronan Farrow New Yorker piece. So I think that is part of what Hannah's talking about, which is that there's just so many people who have come forward with claims against Weinstein, right? And it means that it's very, very difficult for people to pretend that you know or we don't know what really happened or to say you know that's for that family to deal with that's behind their closed doors because it's just so many people and so many very very famous people and so many people that he worked with it's just a real stain against him that he can't deny
2: yeah definitely it's not something he can brush off the magnitude of it is such now that the metropolitan police in the uk are investigating various historic allegations of Mm -hmm. rape and Mm -hmm. so on you know it's now a lot bigger than something that just like a statement from a studio Mm
1: -hmm. could
2: brush off so yeah i think that's one thing but i also do think she's got a point that whilst we can all acknowledge in an abstract sense that he's a very powerful producer and executive i don't think anyone is like a fan of harvey weinstein It's not like you see his face on screen and you feel invested in his personality and his narrative and stuff. And therefore it's not necessarily difficult for people to accept that he individually made done these things. Whereas like we talked about in the problematic fave episode, I think it is harder when you feel like you have a personal investment in the personal art, you know, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: of someone to then go, Oh, okay. Right. But they are a really, really bad person who's harmed a lot of people.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And the thing with accusations against Woody Allen, Roman Polanski, Bill Cosby, they've had such massive existing fan bases that nobody wants to be the person to say, hey, this guy that you love is actually terrible. Mm. Um, Whereas I guess people have felt a little bit more able to say that about Weinstein. I think one thing that I wrote a piece about for The New Statesman is that Weinstein's studio has struggled in the last two years to actually produce the kinds of films that it is known for producing. So that might play into, it's obviously not the whole story, but that might play into a little bit of why these accusations have come out now because some of his power had slipped from his fingers in the last couple of years. So it maybe made people feel more able to say things about him without losing massive, important jobs. And the conversation about sexual assault has just moved on, which is the one kind of positive, I guess, that you can glean from this mess of a situation, is that people do feel slightly more able to come out and say this happened to me and it was this man that did it. But yeah, it's a whole mess. It's very
2: complicated. It's a huge mess. And I don't know about you, but I've found social media generally very upsetting in the last Mm. week or so, just because, you know, lots of people quite rightly sharing their own experiences, which is hard to read but also an awful lot of other people telling them that they shouldn't be sharing those experiences or shouldn't think what they do and all that mm. kind of thing whilst i am pro all of this being out on the open definitely it also does expose quite how far there is to go in this kind of discourse mm, totally which makes me feel a bit weary, to be honest.
1: It's just been relentless. Obviously, it's great to see people having these conversations, but also sometimes you have to take a break from it because it is really, really exhausting, You know, especially for people who've had any sort of experience with sexual assault, which is almost every woman I know, I think. So it's been a difficult week to be on the internet and consuming pop culture. So I guess that's all we have to say on the guy.
2: Yeah. Shall we move on? Let's move on. Let's move on to something more <laughs> cheerful.
1: So the first thing we're going to talk about this week is an album. Mass Seduction is the fifth album by St Vincent, the stage name of singer-songwriter Annie Clark. It came out on 13th October 2017, and despite being hailed as more of a pop crossover work, it has been described as having a grimy, acid aesthetic by BuzzFeed. The first single, New York, is unusually for St Vincent, a piano ballad, and was produced by Jack Antonoff, who's also worked on recent records with Lord and Taylor Swift.
0: New York is a New York without you, love So far and a few blocks to be so low And if I call you from first do only
1: in the city so I have been listening to this album for a few weeks because I was lucky enough to get it early and I'm not someone who's known much about Saint Vincent or really had much of a familiarity with her other records but there was quite a lot of Hype around this record and it was really sort of being described as her best work yet in a few pieces that I read. So I did check it out and I have to say... It's amazing. It's very layered and very textured and very complex, which makes it very hard to talk about, I think, because I i haven't got that extent of music vocabulary. Mm. But I know that I like it. <laughs> and I know that it's kind of confusing and amazing and atmospheric.
2: Yeah, I know what you mean. I have a bit of I think I really liked her previous album, but I don't really know much about the first three. Mm-hmm. And I was also quite excited about this. I've been on a really good roll with music in the last few months. I mean, in terms of new music, I'm not often that good at like keeping up with the new music. Mm -hmm. So I was quite excited for this. And yeah, I I don't know, I was talking to a friend in the pub about it last night. And I was like, I know that I like it. And I know that it's different to everything else I'm listening to at the moment. But I'm not doing a very good job of explaining why that is. (laughs) I do think though that I may be a little bit overdosed on Jack Antonov at the moment.
1: Yeah, sure. I don't think his presence is very heavy on this record. It's
2: not. I mean, it's noticeable in, in the first single, New York, mm-hmm. which does have some, I don't know. I listened to it for the first time. and I was like, oh, this sounds like Lord in some ways.
1: Yeah, it's got the kind of like bouncy keys that some of Swift and Lord have in their singles that are produced by him. But I think overall the album is so much grimier and more distorted than anything Jack Antonoff. I mean, I know that he's someone who uses a lot of layering of sounds and, you know, weird noises, which we've learned from that Lord Song Exploder episode we mentioned on the podcast. He does, you know, use all these different random snippets and put them together to create a greater depth of sound. But aside from that similarity, I think this is just so much weirder and like more discordant than anything he normally works on. So for me I I didn't feel overwhelmed by his appearance. Mm.
2: Annie Clark is an incredible guitarist, among other things. And whilst you get more of that on previous albums and also often live, you know, she plays incredibly live. I feel like on this album, I don't know, a lot more of it is in the background and as you say, looped and treated and interesting Mm -hmm. filters have been put on it i don't know how you describe those things but it's in some places you're like well that probably is a guitar but i don't really know how which is so interesting
1: yeah one thing i really liked on this is how sometimes certain instruments sound like something else so there are lots of i think one of my favorite things about this album is that there are moments that feel very for want of a better word transcendent and almost religious because there are these moments where you get I don't know, like synths that sound like violins and guitars that mm. sound like peeling bells. And then you do get actual violins and the occasional bell and things like that in there as well. But you get this ethereal sort of note. I've noticed them on like Hang On Me. Where yes, there's very kind much. Of like- yeah, it opens the album, but at the towards the end of that song, there's a lot of, she says like, come all ye wasted, wretched and scorned, you know, and it kind of has that come all ye faithful almost vibe. There are lots of kind of spoken word little bits, like on Loss Ageless and Saviour that feel to me a bit like confessions, if that makes sense. Mm. And like the end of smoking section where she says it's not the end over and over again, that feels very like transcendent to me. And the int- obviously the, the instrumentation is a huge part of gi- giving you that feeling.
2: Our friend and previous Seriousy contributor, Laura Snapes, did- wrote an amazing profile of St mm-hmm. Vincent for BuzzFeed a few weeks ago. And there was a quote in that that really came back to me when I was listening to the music. Laura writes, she hoped there will be no mistaking her intent with her new record, which is, quote, so first person and sad.
1: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is definitely that. I like all the stuff about identity on this record, mm. and I think sometimes women, especially queer women, can always be like as writing about identity, so I don't want to do that to her, because it's not something that's like a, a strong note on every song on the album or anything, but there are just a couple of songs where I kind of felt those questions bubbling to the surface, so Happy Birthday Johnny, where she sings about being accused of acting, and you know doing things for show no true charity and then there's that line where she sings Annie how could you do this to me which feels very I don't know raw and personal and kind of it breaks the fourth wall and breaks through the rest of that song and you kind of get it even on like Saviour which is a song that's basically about like sexual role play where she's dressing up as like a nurse and a teacher and a nun and a policewoman and she says like none of this shit fits mm. about all these different outfits and you know it can feel a bit heavy handed to be like oh yeah like she can't find her true self or whatever but there's some nice playing with those questions of like public persona and private persona on this record
2: it's completely fascinating and I, I'm i slightly hesitant talking about it almost because I don't feel like I know all of it yet mm. even though I've been listening to it nonstop, stop I still feel like it has places to go In my mind, but that's what's really beautiful about it. And this is maybe slightly controversial as much as I do love Lord's melodrama, and I Mm. think I always will. I think I'm getting more out of this. Mm. if that makes sense i don't know it's going deeper for me which is quite exciting i haven't felt like that with an album for ages
1: i think as well we should mention that she is just like an amazing performer and vocalist and like the range of emotions that she brings to the table on this record it goes from like really really playful on pills with that kind of like nursery rhyme melody Mm. that she's kind of singing in this you know very sing-song voice and then these moments where her voice is barely there at all and it's like cracking and disappearing. And she very much is in this tradition. I know she's compared to like Bowie and people like that all the time, but there is something that feels very like Prince or something about her where she's able to do all these different things and with such kind of glamour and make make something really sad seem really like aspirational, which yeah. is, is not the right word because, you know, a lot of this record is really sad and, you know, there are lines about people overdosing in bathtubs that you know are not glamorous at all but she's so beautiful and so I don't know just there's just something so exciting about her that it's kind of irresistible
2: the pitchfork review of this album actually does a really good job of interrogating that whole St Vincent is this era's Bowie etc thing mm. um which is very interesting and I would recommend people go and read it but there was a bit in it where the writer says well if St Vincent is Bowie then this album is her let's dance
1: mm. Which I thought
2: was a really interesting point, sort of placing it in progression of an artist's work.
1: There was also a really great Dazed piece that people should check out that was all about how she fits into the tradition of glam rock, specifically glam rock that's kind of to do with androgyny and Mm -hmm. how glam rock is often about men feminising themselves and how she kind of fits into that tradition as a woman who's not doing that. That was really interesting as well. So lots of links to go in the show notes.
0: In love, sageless, the women never comes. In love, sageless, the mothers look their young.
2: Now we're going to talk about Louis Theroux's latest series of documentaries for the BBC, which is titled Dark States and focuses on social problems in three different American cities. He's looking at heroin addiction in Huntington, West Virginia, sex trafficking in Houston, Texas, and murder in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Each film follows through as he spends time with different people affected by the problem and is full of his trademark hands off interview style. How
0: much, would you say, is the street value of that heroin? About 3,000, possibly, and the heroin, maybe more. But you can see how much money's there. We're seeing so much dope that, to us, that's not that big a deal. I mean, that's how bad our problem is. By now, I was several weeks into my stay, and throughout the city, the ravages of heroin were apparent on a daily basis. It looks all perky now. Yeah, it's Narcan. Riding on the back of the over-prescription of painkillers, heroin has ripped the heart out of Huntington, destroying lives indiscriminately, while the overstretched city workers do their best to turn the tide.
1: Oh, those people in that car. you see how they were looking at us? Step out.
0: Do you have a problem with opiates or heroin? Yeah, I struggled with it. Yeah. Like a contagion, it has left almost no one's life untouched.
1: So the first one was this one about heroin addiction in West Virginia. Huntington is what they call a tri-state town, right? Because it's kind of on the intersection between these three states and... One of the things that I thought is great about this look at heroin addiction in Huntington is the way that he kind of explains how that is a hangover from the town's very specific history, which is that it's an industrial town and had a lot of people doing manual labor and sustaining injuries at work and... Medicating with prescribed painkillers. For many people in the town, that's the first step to becoming a serious drug addict.
2: Yeah, I found that so interesting, especially when he was talking to someone from the emergency services who was explaining that, I think she said something like 80% of the people they subsequently deal with who overdose and stuff started out with legal prescriptions Mm -hmm. for pain medication. Mm -hmm. And then they talk through the, the film about how pharmaceutical companies massively exploited people's dependency on things like Percocet Mm -hmm. by encouraging doctors very heavily to prescribe them and then you end up with someone who maybe was already vulnerable in the start or maybe wasn't but who runs out of their legal pain meds and so then has to go looking for something else because, you know, what other options have they got?
1: Yeah, exactly.
2: And then you end up in this situation where, I think she said there are 49,000 people living in Huntington and in the last year they've had 1,100 people die from overdoses. Wow. Which is completely astonishing. Mm -hmm. But then, as with, I feel like, all Louis Theroux documentaries, his modus is to show you, not necessarily to tell you. So... They do a lot of driving around the town, and you you know you can see in the landscape the former industrial past that you mentioned, and the kind of urban decay. And then, as ever, he focuses in on a few different stories.
1: I think what's so great about his work is, or is particularly this example, is that he finds people from very varied backgrounds, and I think yeah, that definitely. ended up being the thing that hit home to me the most is how. By showing us people from all these different backgrounds how it was really indiscriminate, this addiction. Mm. And we do meet a woman who's in recovery, who seems to be doing very well with her recovery, who's pregnant. Her story is very much one of like having everything she needed, but also having access to her father's painkillers. Because everyone else was doing it from when she was about 12 years old, taking those painkillers. And you just think 12, like people don't even have a chance. Nobody's mature enough to resist an addiction at 12. If the social conditions are there that everyone is that you know is doing it and you have extremely easy access to free drugs and no one to tell you how dangerous it is and no one to help you to stop, then what chance do you have, really?
2: That was something I thought was so interesting about this. The fact that we see that woman who, as far as we can tell, comes from a pretty stable middle class Mm -hmm family ditto the woman who's maybe the main focus of the program uh, called cotilia Mm -hmm. who at one point we go and visit her great uncle who brought her up and he lives on this really nice farm out in the country and he obviously loves her very very much and you know would do anything for her so he's really in a very subtle way busting the myth that oh drug addicts are like society's dropouts yeah. lots of other social problems lead them to this point and this film kind of says no drug addiction is so powerful that it can overcome anything else good that you might have going on totally
1: i think one of the stories that really i found absolutely amazing is the story of this guy who was married and deep in a heroin addiction with his wife And had been in jail for like stealing a laptop and had really been an addict for a serious Mm. amount of time. And we meet him in this documentary helping current addicts and trying to help them at least live a safe life if not get on to recovery the fact that he recovered from a heroin addiction that serious and he's a year sober when we talked to him in the documentary i just thought was the most ridiculous achievement it's like Mm. incredible and as you say louis has this very hands-off interview style so there's this guy in the back of his car telling him that he's been a year sober after like over a decade of not being able to do anything barely even leave his home or you know his tent or whatever and he's like not like, oh, congratulations or anything. He's just sat there like silently and I wanted to scream and be like, he's done the world's most amazing thing. Tell him. Uh, but he didn't because <laughs> that's his style.
2: But that's kind of Louis' style, isn't it? So yeah, at the same time, someone's like, oh, yeah, I've been a year sober. I had to leave my own wife in order to achieve that. He's like, oh, how did that feel? And then at the same token, when Catilia's telling him that her boyfriend, who is also her drug dealer, mm. like, keeps her like she's a pet and she can't get away from him even though he beats her up. He's like, oh, that's sad. You know? Yeah. He's sort of weirdly emotionless a lot of the time. Which I know is for the point of showing you rather than Putting his own feelings or narrative on things. But occasionally, like, yeah, with that example of the guy who'd managed to get sober, you feel like, well, you could say, well done.
1: <laughs> that was a really harrowing moment that you just mentioned in the documentary where Catilia asks her boyfriend to sort of leave the room because she's, she says she's embarrassed or whatever. And then as soon as he leaves the room, she's sort of like, you know, this guy hits me. And mm. I wouldn't be in this situation if I wasn't so addicted to heroin and if I didn't need... Him to supply it for me and him to pay my rent and get me good quality drugs and you know so on. That conversation comes up a couple of times in the documentary, and this is where I start to feel a bit sometimes nervous about Louis through documentaries because he does say that Catilia gave him permission to do this, but he just like straight up asks this guy like, "Oh, you hit Catilia, you know, you broke her nose, didn't you? And you worry about what happens when they go home that night after doing that interview. And I know that the point of these documentaries is not to help people, but to shed light on a problem and hope that there's like structural help as a result. But I felt very uncomfortable in some of those scenes because I worry about how much support they're giving their interviewees outside of what we see. And the answer to that might be loads. I just don't know. And so you ethically... Mm worry about these people and you worry about people who are giving consent to things like being filmed doing drugs and stuff when they're so vulnerable and they're so deep in an addiction and a lot of the time they're actually high so they can't give properly fully formed consent on camera and how does that work
2: yeah i thought that there's one scene where he's shadowing the emergency workers and they respond to a call of an od of a Mm. woman who's like lying on the floor Mm. and you know they're helping her and i was like wow i could she have said yes to this in full knowledge i don't know it's definitely a very important film to watch i definitely feel like i understand a lot more about drug addiction than i did before i watched it but yeah as you say with louis through it's often quite on the edge of what you think is maybe appropriate or sensible Yeah,
1: and a lot of those questions come up in the second episode which is about sex trafficking in houston And that scene with Cotillia talking about her abusive boyfriend who she's only staying with because she's got a serious drug addiction and needs somewhere to live. There are parallels to that in this sex trafficking one, which is a lot of Louis speaking to women who are in very, very difficult situations where they're semi in love with these pimps who control their entire lives. And they'll be talking about the abusive relationship they have with their pimps on camera And I worry so much. You know, in one case, the pimp's in jail, so it feels kind of more okay. But in another, he's not. And you really worry for her safety at several points in the documentary. That's when those questions of ethics really worry me a bit.
2: Yeah, I haven't watched that one yet, but I am very much intending Mm to.
1: Yeah, it's very dark. It's very hard to watch. And sex work is obviously a very very thorny issue in particular so you don't want this guy to like go in and be like all of you are making terrible choices Mm. and there is a moment where he says you know I feel convinced there's one woman who's very very keen to let Louis know that she's very happy with her choice and she makes a lot of money and she likes what she does but Louis doesn't bite for a second and he says several times Mm. you know like I felt convinced that her choices were wrong but unable to explain to her why you know so that's a whole other issue where that is extremely complex and one that I don't have all the knowledge to to come to a proper conclusion on. And then the final one is going to be on murder in Milwaukee. And I don't know how that's going to play out in Wisconsin, but I'm excited to watch it. And even though I have all these problems and questions about Louis III documentaries, I am always really excited to watch them. So we'll see how the series develops. (laughs) So last week, I recommended that Caroline watch the HBO miniseries, Big Little Lies, starring Reese Witherspoon, Nicole Kidman, Shailene Woodley, Laura Dern, all the big gals. Caroline, what did you make of this creeping backwards murder
2: mystery, I guess? (laughs) Yeah, it's such an interesting structure in the sense that... So there are seven episodes and you get this flickering cut between this beautiful sunlit rich people life Mm. in monterey california and then without warning it kind of flicks into brief bits of scenes of police interrogations and murder scene investigation and you know detectives giving press conferences and all this kind of stuff so you know from the start that something dreadful has happened Mm. but you don't necessarily know what or who but people in the interrogation scenes keep using phrases like so are we calling this a murder then Mm. and stuff like that so you're like someone's been murdered but i don't know who yeah and obviously it's intentional the contrast between the very sort of glossy rich lifestyle and something as horrible and horrific as murder is there on purpose to make you feel off balance and confused but yeah it's really effective and I have to say, to start with, that was what kept me watching because I didn't immediately really connect with any of the characters or mm. I don't know. I think if it was just the like Monterey scenes and like Reese Witherspoon playing a sort of slightly spoilt woman, stay at home mum in her wealthy house, etc, cetera, etc., cetera, I would have been like i didn't watch the real housewives of la for a reason i don't really like this but because you know it's got this undercurrent of thriller and something else yeah it becomes intriguing for them
1: i have to say how dare you Uh, I absolutely love Reese Witherspoon in this Madeline Martha McKenzie my hero I just think she's such a brilliant character and in the first episode I do think there's something of the she just comes across as like a bit of a bitch and like maybe not that interesting a character and as it goes on she just becomes I just love her she's like so Reese Witherspoon is brilliant in this very comic performance as this woman who has a perfect life and is like very very controlling and very aggressive, but also has like a real kind streak in her and a real like yeah you know obsession with defending the underdog whether that's a play that no one wants to put on or the single mum who's moved into the area or what you know she's got this this streak in her that's kind of about justice, but she just gets some great lines and I really like when she says something like she said she gets she like loses it on the phone and she says like fuck you on the head or something. Yeah. <laughs> it's just so funny. I loved her. She's my idol, my queen.
2: It was interesting seeing this so soon after seeing her in Home again. Yeah. Because although obviously the two roles are different, I did think there was an extent to which her character in Big Little Lies is Kind of like if her character in Home Again had made a sequence of different decisions, <laughs> she could have ended up in this situation. I don't know. It she's was just
1: so, yeah, so like sparky. And then there's just so many great performances in this. Zoe Kravitz plays Madeline's ex-husband's new wife, the kind of stepmother to her children. And she's beautiful and like really good at yoga and does boxing self-defense classes and stuff and she's never painted as a villain but she's irritatingly perfect irritatingly new age la person in the first few episodes and i love how her character develops as well as you begin to see that actually she is just someone who really cares about other people and that's like not something to be sneered at she is just you know a great person all the female characters laura dern shailene woodley nicole Kidman, as the woman who is you learn sort of very early on in the first episode Being abused by her husband. Hmm. They're all really, really great performances. And I loved seeing so many of these women characters interact with each other. And I think that's sort of what made this more than just like an interesting murder mystery for me.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. While I was watching it, I was mentally comparing it a bit to Gone Girl Mm. and thinking, because when did Gone Girl come out? I feel like the book maybe came out two years ago, two, three years ago. Maybe this is putting too much on it, but I thought you can see how much we've moved on, that Gone Girl was the hit best-selling thriller and then big movie, Mm. where all the focus was around this one female character and her role as the so-called cool girl and basically how she interacted with men. Mm. And then three, four years on, we've got Big Little Lies, which is about an ensemble female cast Mm. And
1: That only came together because of you know Reese Witherspoon saying this has to be made and yeah. getting really behind it. Yeah,
2: I'm hesitant to say that progress only goes in one direction because we know it doesn't. But I don't know. It's it's an in, it's an interesting to see them side by side like that.
1: Yeah, I thought. Yeah, I love this. I thought. It, I think it's amazing. I sort of. I think there's discussion about whether they're going to do a second season. Oh, of interesting. It you know it would be impossible to do but i would actually just watch a whole season of them just like hanging out in monterey all these all these <laughs> women because i just love them yeah that, so, so the daily mail said it may return for season two in september and cnn said it seems more likely in august so i'll watch it
2: <laughs> yeah yeah no definitely good recommendation um and i now see why everyone was so crazy about it a few yeah months ago.
1: yeah of course so for next week we have an email recommendation, don't we? Which comes we from Reese. Reese says he'd like to recommend a film I just came out of the cinema from seeing God's Own Country. It's one of the most beautiful queer films I can recall seeing, and the way it tackles the interplay of homosexuality and masculinity seems, to me anyway, as a gay guy, the most realistic and un Hollywood of any film I've ever seen. There are some really great performances and it seems timely given the national shambles that is Brexit. I mean, that makes no sense to me as someone who hasn't seen the film. So <laughs> I think we probably have to see see it to understand what Reese means by that last bit.
2: I think I read a piece about it. I think it has a kind of immigration um, okay. plot to that it. That makes sense. Yeah, I think that's um, what he means. I know
1: lots of people that I really respect have adored this film, including Simran who came on the podcast and a few other people. And I've been wanting to see it for some time and i just haven't made the trip to the cinema so i'm really excited to do this for next week
2: yes reese actually emailed a while ago but it's still on release in picture houses and various independent cinemas i think so we're going to try and catch it before it goes and maybe you should do the same listeners Thanks for listening to this episode of Seriously, the pop
1: culture podcast from The New Statesman.
2: If you enjoyed the show, why not subscribe to make sure you never miss another episode? We're available in all the usual places you get podcasts, including on Apple Podcasts, where you could leave us a rating and a review if you fancy. It makes us happy and it also helps other people find the show.
1: If you'd like to come and see us in person, check out the events page of our website, seriouslypod.com slash events. Details of our next pop culture quiz and anything else we're doing will appear there.
2: We're available many other places on the internet, including on Twitter, Facebook and Tumblr. We're Seriously Pod on all of them. Follow us to keep up with what we're up to or to chat to other listeners about things you enjoyed on the show
1: we love getting your recommendations for things we should feature on the show or hearing your thoughts on what we've already discussed get in touch on social media or email us on seriouslypod at gmail.com
2: and if you feel strongly that more pop culture needs to be taken seriously spread the word and tell your friends and family about the podcast